Hello and welcome to WTF is Fio, a podcast for healthcare professionals and students of the healthcare professions. I'm Alex, a paramedic and a medical student. And I'm Jack. I'm also a paramedic. In this podcast, we are going to take a deeper dive into the anatomy, physiology and pathophysiology of appendicitis, exploring the topic, expanding on the need to knows from the At A Glance podcast. Acute appendicitis is one of the most common abdominal surgical emergencies in the UK, with approximately 40,000 cases being treated in UK hospitals annually. So before we talk about the disease, let's clear up the relevant anatomy to the right lower quadrant of the abdomen. The end of the small intestine, or ileum, connects to the start of the large intestine, or cecum, by the ileocecal valve. The appendix is a finger-like appendage attached to the cecum just after that valve and varies greatly in length. It averages in 9 centimetres in length, but can range from between 5 centimetres to 35 centimetres. And this variety in length contributes to how symptoms present. The blood supply of the appendix is the appendicular artery, which is a terminal branch of the ileocecal artery, and its nerve supply is as follows. The autonomic innervation, or what controls it, is the superior mesenteric plexus, and its pain sensation is carried on sympathetic nerve fibres that enter the spinal cord at T10, the umbilical dermatome. As well as the variation in length, there's a fair amount of physiological variation in the position of the body of the appendix. The most common position of the appendix is the retrocecal one. This would be described as where the appendix is located behind the cecum or posterior to the cecum. Next is the pelvic position. This would be where the appendix goes down inferiorly into the pelvis. There is also the subsecal, pre-ileal and post-ileal position. However, these account for less than 5% of the positions, so I won't go into any great length in describing them. The retrocecal appendix, in combination with a 35 centimetre long appendix, can have the tip of the appendix reaching all the way up to the hepatorenal recess, which is where the kidney meets the liver on the right-hand side. There's also rare circumstances in which the appendix isn't generated, so a genesis of the appendix. There is also, in literature, records of duplication and triplication of the appendix. However, these are very rare. The anatomy can also change during pregnancy, with the enlarged uterus pushing the appendix upwards and this can result in the appendix presenting in the right upper quadrant in the third trimester of pregnancy. Now let's talk about the structure or architecture of the appendix. The appendix can be considered a true diverticulum of the colon, and hence contains all the colionic layers. This includes the mucosa, submucosa, longitudinal and circular muscular layers, and the serosa. The mucosa also contains neuroendocrine cells, which produce amines and hormones, and the lamina propria contains gut-associated lymphoid tissue. Now we have that out of the way, Jack's going to talk to us about the surface anatomy and what the appendix actually does. Identifying the location that the appendix meets the cecum from the surface is relatively simple. Firstly, locate the umbilicus and the anterior superior iliac spine, the most prominent bone on the anterior lateral aspect of the pelvis. Draw an imaginary line between the two and two thirds of the way along that line from the umbilicus is McBurney's point which is useful to locate during assessment. However, with anatomical abnormalities, this location can be inconsistent, sometimes making assessment more challenging, which we will cover later on in the episode. Now, let's quickly cover what the appendix actually does, because historically, it has been considered to be largely useless in humans. Whilst there is still no clear evidence to support its function, there are a few leading theories. The presence of gut-associated lymphoid tissue has led to belief that it serves a function in immunity. And more recently, 
it has been suggested that the appendix may serve a purpose as a safe house for gut flora, enabling the flora to repopulate the large intestine faster after bouts of diarrhoea. Now we have talked about the appendix, we will next go over why it is a health emergency when it becomes inflamed, known as appendicitis. So why is the inflammation of a small vestigial organ considered a surgical emergency? Well, appendicitis can result in abscess formation, ileus, or paralysis of the bowel. It can also lead to peritonitis, sepsis, and death if left untreated. So now let's talk about the pathophysiology of appendicitis. Most commonly, appendicitis is caused by an obstruction at the appendiceal orifice, or the opening of the appendix into the cecum. This obstruction can be via things like fecaliths, which are calcified feces. It can also be obstructed by normal stool or foreign bodies within the stool, such as undigested food. Things like rogue gallstones or worms can also obstruct the appendix, or things like lymphoid hyperplasia or tumors can also be the culprits. As the obstruction blocks the outflow of mucus produced within the appendix, the intramural pressure increases. Once the pressure exceeds that of perfusion pressure supplied by the appendicular artery, the arterial supply and the venous drainage of the appendix becomes compromised. It is this distension and increase in pressure within the lumen that causes the initial signs and symptoms of appendicitis. As the pressure continues to increase, the small vessels around the appendix become completely blocked, and this causes vascular congestion. This results in even more appendiceal engorgement and starts the process of the appendiceal tissue becoming ischemic. Once the inflammation begins to involve the outer serosa of the appendix, the parietal peritoneum becomes irritated. At this point, the generalized abdominal pain that is initially experienced is differentiated into right iliac fossa pain. Finally, as the ischemia progresses, the wall of the appendix can undergo necrosis, eventually resulting in appendiceal perforation. Perforation allows the contents of the appendiceal lumen to become free-floating within the peritoneal cavity, and hence sepsis can occur. Despite how common appendicitis is, correctly diagnosing it remains challenging, as clinical signs or positive blood results can be absent in up to 55% of patients. A delay or misdiagnosis can result in the complications discussed previously. Presentations vary depending on how far the inflammation has developed on their clinical classification between simple appendicitis and complex appendicitis with gangrenous or perforated appendix. Abdominal pain is the most common presenting complaint and classically occurs as a periumbilical pain that moves to the right iliac fossa. The location of the pain can vary depending on the position of the appendix. A retrocecal appendix can cause flank or back pain. A retroilial appendix can cause testicular pain due to irritation of the spermatic artery or ureter in men. A pelvic appendix can cause suprapubic pain akin to a UTI. The time frame of the onset of the pain is from 1 to 12 hours and is described commonly as a constant pain with intermittent cramping. It is often worsened by movement and coughing and is associated with anorexia, nausea, vomiting and sometimes constipation or diarrhoea. The diagnostic sequence of colicky central abdominal pain followed by vomiting with migration of the pain to the right iliac fossa was first described by Murphy but may only present in 50% of the patients. Common signs and symptoms include a low-grade pyrexia, tachycardia and a flushed face and other differentials that are important to think about would include ectopic pregnancy, UTI, mesenteric adenitis in children, cholecystitis, especially difficult in patients with a retrocecal appendix, 
as this can present with upper right quadrant pain. Primary peritonitis, acute gastroenteritis, Crohn's disease, diverticulitis, and cystitis. On examination, you'll generally find a peritonism with guarding, rebound tenderness in the right lower quadrant, a percussion tenderness, exquisite tenderness in the right iliac fossa, pain on right side during PR exam may suggest a low-lying pelvic appendix. Other signs to look out for include Rovsing sign, which is a pain in the right iliac fossa when the left iliac fossa is palpated. Sower's sign, which is a pain on extension of the hip if there is a retrocecal appendix. And Cope sign is pain on flexion or internal rotation if the appendix is in close relation to the obturator internus. Now, Alex, what kind of investigation findings can we expect? While appendicitis is mostly a clinical diagnosis, there are some investigations that can be done to help refine and differentiate a possible appendicitis. To start off with, a white blood cell count, specifically looking at neutrophils, would help indicate an acute infection. Also, a raised CRP or C-reactive protein would indicate any acute inflammation that's happening. These two blood results in conjunction with the clear clinical picture that Jack just described would normally be enough to initiate treatment for an appendicitis. However, if there is any clinical ambiguity, we can go on to do imaging. This would include an ultrasound or a CT abdo pelvis to help look at the size and distension of the appendix to further differentiate an appendicitis. Another tactic for differentiating appendicitis is the use of scoring systems. One example of this is the Alvarado scoring system. It uses a mixture of symptoms and signs to generate a score out of 10. I'll just run through these. So migratory right iliac fossa pain, nausea or vomiting, anorexia, rebound tenderness in the right iliac fossa, pyrexia, right iliac fossa tenderness laboratory findings, a left shift in neutrophils, an increase in leukocytes added together forms a score out of 10 with a score of 7 to 8 being a probable appendicitis and a score of 9 considered a very probable appendicitis. Other scores include the appendicitis inflammatory response score, and these can be used in conjunction with each other to generate a clinical risk score. These scoring mechanisms help get rid of some clinician bias and add some objectivity to the diagnosis of appendicitis, and if used correctly, help better risk stratify your patients. Now we've spoken about what appendicitis looks like and how to diagnose appendicitis, let's look at who can get appendicitis and some common risk factors for appendicitis. So let's start off with appendicitis can occur in any age group with a lifetime instance of around 6%. While it can occur at any age, the peak instance usually occurs around the second or third decade of life and the disease is much less common at both extremes of age. Appendicitis is very rare at the age of two due to the appendix having a cone shape at this age with a much larger lumen. Recent theories also suggest that infectious agents, genetic factors, environmental influences and GI infections are also known risk factors. However, I believe this is poorly understood. From the literature I looked at, it showed that genetic factors showed a positive family association. So a positive family history of appendicitis was associated with a nearly threefold increase in risk of appendicitis. In terms of environmental risk factors, there is a typical seasonal presentation with a peak in appendicitis during the summer. In terms of infection, it is usually a bacteria that is both aerobic and anaerobic, so E. coli would be an example of this. Also, malignancy, however rare, 
is also a risk factor in about 1% of appendicitis. There is an underlying neuroendocrine tumour of the appendix or an adenocarcinoma. Also from my research, while there is no definite gender difference, some papers did seem to suggest that there was a slight male predominance in presentation of appendicitis. And these papers also suggested that there was a geographical difference with a lifetime risk of appendicitis at 16% in South Korea versus 9% in the US and 1.8% in Africa. Now we have covered the risk factors, let's look at a typical presentation of appendicitis. A 20-year-old male presents to the ambulance service with abdominal pain, anorexia, nausea and a fever. He describes it as a grumbling pain in the mid-abdominal region a number of hours ago and has since migrated to the right lower quadrant. On examination, he has an elevated temperature of 38.1 degrees, an elevated heart rate of 105, and the rest of his observations were unremarkable, with a new score totaling of 2. There was tenderness on palpation in the right iliac fossa, with it worsening still on rebound. He is positive for Rosving's sign, although negative for Sowa's sign. He has taken his own paracetamol already, and the ambulance crew further treat him with intravenous morphine. They make a telephone referral to the local surgical assessment unit and transport him to the hospital. Once at the hospital, bloods are taken revealing an elevated white blood cell count, specifically neutrophils, and an elevated CRP. This would likely be enough to initiate treatment for appendicitis. However, sometimes an abdominal CT will also be performed to reduce the risk of an unnecessary appendicectomy. So now we have a good idea of what a classical appendicitis looks like. Let's go over the red flags and signs of a deteriorating patient. So to start off with, any signs of perforation should ring alarm bells. These signs include if the patient looks distinctly unwell or if there's any signs of shock. If observations indicate sepsis. If there's localised or generalised peritonitis with rigid guarding. Or if there's a palpable mass present, as this would indicate a periappendiceal abscess. Now let's look more closely at perforation by itself. Perforation is defined as a visible hole in the appendix, or if there's an appendicolith or a calcified deposit from within the appendix, free within the abdomen. Rates vary between 16% and 40%, with a higher frequency in the younger age groups and in the 50 plus age groups. Perforation is associated with an increased morbidity and mortality rate, and hence why it's a red flag sign to look out for. Subsequent to perforation, patients with appendicitis are vulnerable to generalised peritonitis. This is a potentially life-threatening infection that results from the lease of plurilent material into the peritoneal cavity. Patients with perforation, as well as those with generalised peritonitis, are also vulnerable to getting sepsis. Perforation in particular can lead to sepsis in around 20% of cases. Bowel obstruction is a further consequence of perforation and may result from the development of intra-abdominal adhesions, post-appendicitis, perforation, or subsequent surgeries. Another complication that could be considered a red flag is the finding of an appendiceal mass, as this could either be an appendiceal phlegmon or an appendiceal abscess. An appendiceal phlegmon occurs when the inflamed appendix and adjacent viscera and greater omentum become an isolated inflammatory bundle, whereas an appendiceal abscess is a pus-containing mass. Diagnosis of this is often made when a palpable mass is found during clinical examination, or an appendiceal abscess may be visualised on CT or ultrasound. Importantly, appendiceal masses can be self-limiting and resolve of their own accord, and an appendiceal abscess may need draining before any other intervention can occur. These appendiceal masses, be it a phlegmon or an abscess, 
can occur in between 2 to 7% of acute appendicitis cases. So it is always important to palpate for a mass in the right iliac fossa. Having discussed the red flags, let's now run through the treatment algorithm for different presentations of appendicitis. Almost all presentations will be treated the same initially. As previously mentioned in the typical case presentation, pain management is the first step, often started pre-hospitally by ambulance crews or patients themselves. This includes oral paracetamol and anti-inflammatories and is supplemented by opioids in various preparations such as codeine and morphine. Further to this, fluids are often prescribed, particularly as a bolus in shocked patients, but also as a maintenance dose. The patients should be nil by mouth onwards from first contact with healthcare aiming for six hours before surgery as a minimum. Prophylactic antibiotics are then often started according to your local trust guidelines. After this treatment has been initiated, the treatment for different presentations then diverges. Currently, the gold standard for a simple appendicitis is a laparoscopic appendicectomy within 24 hours of admission. If patients refuse surgery or are not suitable for surgery, a conservative approach can be taken with dual IV antibiotic therapy according to your local policies. In a complicated appendicitis where there is a perforated appendix, the appendicectomy is done as an emergency procedure and if intestinal contents are found within the abdomen, postoperative antibiotics are indicated. In a complicated appendicitis where there is an appendiceal abscess, which is indicated by a palpable mass on examination, a conservative approach is indicated utilising antibiotics and percutaneous drainage. If required, this can have subsequent surgery, but immediate surgery is associated with an increased risk of morbidity and a risk of an unnecessary ileocecal resection. Now, speaking of morbidity and mortality, let's go on to review this in general for appendicitis. A Swedish retrospective cohort study found that there was a mortality rate of 0.8 per thousand procedures for an uncomplicated appendicitis and a rate of just over 5 per thousand procedures for a perforated appendix. Now, in terms of those patients handled with a non-operative conservative approach, the papers and meta-analysis I looked at showed some benefits in terms of reduced complications and shorter stays in hospitals, but also showed a lower effective rate and a higher relapse rate. One Italian retrospective cohort analysis found that the relapse rate for those managed with the dual antibiotic therapy first approach had a relapse rate of 23.1%, with the majority representing within two months of their initial presentation. Now, to summarise all of that, let's go over some take-home messages. There are over 40,000 cases of acute appendicitis presenting to UK hospitals annually, with up to 25% of these cases being complicated appendicitis. They are complicated by either perforation or the findings of a mass. And to go over what we've learnt, we've discussed the location and anatomy of the appendix. We've discussed that most appendicitises are caused by an obstruction. We've also learnt that the classical symptoms of appendicitis, these being a grumbling abdopain that migrates into the right iliac fossa, may only present in around 50% of cases. And we've also learned that despite the availability and benefits of conservative management, the gold standard remains the surgical approach. Thank you for listening to WTF is Theo. I hope you enjoyed the content. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to discuss the episode and influence future episodes. Mm-hmm.